Hey, Jenny, and welcome back. Fascinating <laughs> week. How are you doing? How's the voice going after our um, voice coaching last week? Hiya, Jill. Um, um, I'd like to say I've kept up um, all the practice and the panting. I think it lasted about one day, but it was fun last week, and it is something I'm keen to, to, to look at. I thought it was a... Uh, it was really fun. I don't know what it was like for the listeners listening to us making very strange noises, but yeah, I'm good. Thanks to you. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Yes, I've I found it difficult. I've got a second. I've I've hurt my foot, so I'm not able to uh, go and talk to Laura again tonight. But I'm I'm going to have another session with her soon. Ooh. Uh, but that'll be look. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think I think I I, I was find I found it as much as interesting as well as wanting to improve. But actually, I found the whole subject fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the whole subject of voice dysphoria, we talked about ourselves and, you know, stresses and strains of being on the phone, um, are fascinating, aren't they? I, I, there's part of me that the voice, it's weird, isn't it? I'd love my voice to be better, but I'm so used to and stuck with my voice. It's like, and now I'm so just used to being a woman. So it feels like trying to change something that is not me and, and having yeah. something sound different coming out of my gob. Um feel straight i don't know why i feel strange it's probably something that's better to do when you first transition in some respects than yeah. 20 years afterwards <laughs> yeah it, I, however it's also interesting to learn more about your, your body indeed i always, oh, I always think we don't think enough about our bodies and our health and you know and actually thinking about being in touch with certain bits of your body that are you know and understanding how bits of it work i think it's quite it was quite i found that quite fascinating really yeah yeah definitely definitely well, today I've got a bit of a strange question that's coming from the audience. So people, as you know, can submit questions at uh, JillianRussell77 at yahoo.com, um, uh, um, yeah. which is absolutely fine. Or some is people that still read... going Yahoo? God, that's an old yeah. email address. Can you imagine? Um, but people do send one in. And it's quite an interesting question that's come in, which I thought, given your background and some of the work I do would be quite interesting. Uh, okay. the, quest the questions are along the lines of this. I'll just paraphrase it because it's actually quite a long question. But effectively, um, what the person's talking about is, it called Pete, trans man. Mm -hmm. And what Pete's talking about is the fact that they have to deal with the NHS in many different variety, many different ways. Uh, the sort of virtually post-op and they're dealing with all sorts of surgery issues and such like, and they're dealing with sexual health and they're dealing with doctors and such like. And, and the sort of question is almost, it's its paraphrasing it because it's really long. It's along the lines of how do I get, how do I work better with the NHS? How do I get a better service from the NHS? Because it seems mm. quite patchy. Um, Pete says that he's been to some areas and they're really, really brilliant and very inclusive and such like, and he's been to some other areas and they're just not. And um, why is it patchy is one of the questions. And, and the question is, is what more can Pete do to help people help him get better service from the NHS? And I know we've talked a little bit about healthcare in the past before, but I thought it was quite interesting because I think um, given that you're sort of around, around that vicinity, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about what you think the NHS is up to. And, and I'm working with some various bits of the NHS so we can maybe get a, get a perspective. Well, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting point. I mean, I'm I'm not sure about how to get for individuals to get make it work better for them. That requires some thought, I think. But it is certainly something the NHS, certainly where I work, are striving to do better better at because certainly they're coming from a very low base, um, and I think that's I think that's one of the 
the the difficulty. I think the will is there, but um, everybody's starting from a, a low base. So, for instance, from my understanding, uh, so previously, no um, clinicians, students, medical students have had any sort of any part of the training has touched on gender identity. Um, you know, even for the basic awareness. So I, I found it uh, very interesting in, in delivering training to clinicians of all, of all sorts and all colours um, um, about how they want to do better, but they're just not quite sure how, and they, they want more awareness um, because they're more and more coming into contact with trans and non-binary, um, gender non-deploying people uh, and want to do right with them, but are worried about getting it wrong. And I think that's yeah. the... I think that's the the worry, and I think I, I, I was talking to um, I did a training session for student nurses. I think it was about 150 on an online session on this, but I think it was really interesting because it was good that they were really keen. It, it, it heartens me that they're really keen to do the right thing, but I could tell one of the things they worry about is getting language wrong or upsetting somebody. And I think if you've got that in your mind when you're treating a patient, that can itself become a bit of a barrier, I think. So I, I think people are trying, but I think it's quite patchy. Some trusts are, you know, the, the trusts I work for are doing really good on this. They're really uh, back to delivering training and have policies in place um, for supporting both trans patients and staff. But I think that's patchy, you know, and there's such a lot of pressure on the NHS at the moment. It's where do you find, where do you find time for that? Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Because NHS is... I mean, I think it, it, at one stage, wasn't it the Europe's biggest employer? I think it's probably still probably yeah, the UK's be. biggest employer. And so, I mean, what I'd say to Pete is that you can't look at the NHS as one thing. It's it's sort of many things. And, and you've hit an interesting thing here. So the first thing is you have these trusts which are organised too. Mm. And sometimes the way those trusts are led and managed creates a different sort of culture to another trust. And then you have the difference between primary care, hospital care, aftercare, yeah. social care, um, and such like. And all of those things are different. Um, so I, I know anecdotally that a lot of people say they, they, they have doctors who are either completely versed in the situation, um, or you have doctors who are maybe in a rural practice who've never bumped into a trans person. And then you have some people who are in cities who are, you know, absolutely there and thereabouts, they have no problems and they're absolutely fine. And they're, and they're adapted to it. They have a process for it because actually they're, they're regularly sort of running into it. And a lot of trans people say that they're often educating their doctors, their, their GPs, particularly GPs, Definitely. into this subject. So and, and, and you, so just thinking about GPs, first of all, would you, would you agree with that? And I think part of our role is sometimes to educate you know, how do we get better service from the, you know, people in the NHS? Well, sometimes we just need to educate them in, in terms of how we need to be dealt with, really. No, I, I would absolutely agree with you that, that primary care and GPs are, are the key first step. And actually, that's not where I don't think a huge amount of work has been done. Uh, because GP practices, people don't realise that people who work in GP practices are not employed by the NHS, they're employed yeah. by the practice. It's a private contractor. The doctor might have a contract with the NHS, but it's a different way. So that, that rather than the big employers who are doing a lot of the work, the big providers. But it, it is, it's the first place we go. It's the first place we would go um, to change our details. It's the first place we go to get help from the NHS to get a referral to a gender identity clinic. And... I think there is um, a dearth of knowledge um, there. I certainly, I don't know if how much it's improved, but certainly when I first went, and uh, you know, it was, 
basically I was educating the doctor a little bit. They just hadn't had many trans patients at that time. And I think uh, when you, I think when you talk to some trans people, though, that you do get this thing about, well, how outrageous is it that they don't understand about us and they don't understand what our needs are and this, that, and the other. And I, and I think it's often the case that when you you have, you know you're a um, you're a smaller strand of society, or you know you, you're um, I was going to say a minority population, but I suppose there's no other way of putting it, really. Um, if people aren't running across trans people on a regular basis, there's no reason to think that they would be totally au fait. It's, um, I know my um, my own mother had a particularly rare condition, which now in the States is called ALS, but in the UK is called MSA. And doctors had no idea what it was. And we would go there and say, we, we, we have this diagnosis. And they would say, oh, really, what's that? How can I find out more? And 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 I think and I think the thing about being a general practitioner yeah. is that you sort of generally know a little bit about a very wide range of stuff. And sometimes you just know what you don't know. I've got a very good friend of mine who's a GP, works down in the Corn Cornwall area, and um, I chatted to him about this the other day, and he has never met a trans person. Now it doesn't mean that it doesn't have trans people, but he's he has never had anyone coming to his surgery. And so he said, you know, what would I do if someone came along? And I said, Well, probably you'd ask them what, you know, how how you can help them. Because actually sometimes we know a heck of a lot more. And I don't think we should get necessarily bent out of shape, because it's a bit like with my mother. We have to we used to sort of take pieces of research into the doctor and say, hey, the, this is the latest status of this disease and this is what's going on. And the doctor invariably said, thanks, this is really useful. This will help me give you better care because I don't run across MSA every single day. I don't run across trans people every day. And I think sometimes we need to have a degree of patience and not have that. I mean, some I... people do think we should be entitled to be, um, you know, everybody should know exactly everything about us all the time. But I just wonder whether we just need a degree of, patience in the way that we deal with people as well i would i would agree with you in terms of yes uh, you know as the as you said the generalists and, and expecting them to know everything i think i mean where i have a problem is when we have heard of cases of gps that have pretty much um refused to support a trans people it's very it's rare granted but i certainly know of course before that's been the case and of course if you have a a really bad experience in terms of uh, of that if you're uh, are not treated with respect of your gender identity, you might not go to the GP when you're poorly. And that has health outcomes, doesn't it? So yeah. that's why, in a sense, it's so key. I think you're right. We shouldn't be hard on people who are... But, but then, you know, if you've got a patient... I, I don't think it... I mean, this is me sort of pushing back. I don't think it takes a lot of time, if you're not sure, to do a... If you Google in the right places, you can get some more awareness pretty... Uh, pretty quickly it has surprised me in some of the gaps in in knowledge when i've been delivering training that i didn't expect mm. i mean for instance um I, I i i've asked so many people you know when i'm looking at definitions about intersex and they don't know what it means and it's yeah. the most medical term we'll talk about so um as part of the community so i think there are some gaps in knowledge and i think some gps but you're right if you've got a root your rural practice and you haven't come across anybody, you, the pressures are, are so immense on in GP land at the moment. I can understand why it's not your first priority. And I think and I think this is where the practice manager is your friend. I think people often find that they have to engage in a sort of an adversarial conflict with the with the doctor. And often the doctor is the person is is quite willing to help, but you know, you can it's better to talk to the practice manager if you've got concerns because the practice manager can often put you into a different doctor or a different practice. 
Um, I mean, often the practice you allocate is one to do with your where, where you are. But if you're in a rural place, uh, there are ways, of, so especially if you're at work and you've got a private med- medical school, you can access you know, GPs online. You don't always have to go in. Um, there are lots of private doctors you can access if you if you have the funds. If you don't, then you're stuck with the NHS. And I think therefore yeah. it's about it's saying you know kindly and respectfully, this is information that might help you help me. And you do run into the odd occasion where you've got someone who has very strong religious beliefs, but those religious beliefs are not meant to get in the way of a duty of care over any patient. And yeah. and so if you have an issue, just you know drop a line to the practice manager and say, can I chat about this? And I think having a more having a more uh, having a less adversarial approach with the GP can actually help you. And I found that, you know, um, and it maybe helps because I'm a bit older. But um, you know, actually just being able to sit down and say, look, this is I had a a doctor that wouldn't do shared care. And, uh, and I explained what was going on. They explained what's going on back. And I still can't have shared care because of um, a trust policy. And, and that's fine. You know, it's that's one of those things. And trusts have that ability to make that decision. Whether they should or shouldn't is irrelevant. The fact well, is I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's fine, but I understand his No, well, it is. It is. It, it is. It is. <laughs> it's not It's not my preferred way, but it's, it's fine for them. It's their decision. They can do what they want, really. Um, but when it comes to hospitals, I think it's... Uh, it becomes more interesting because, of course, you often go to hospitals and they're massive organisations with lots of moving pieces, lots of different people. There's a big difference between uh, doctors and nurses, clinicians, as you should say, and porters and non-medical staff and such like. And you're going to potentially bump into a lot of different people who are necessarily going to need a bit of help and support. Now, lots of trusts now, I notice, if you go in, wear name badges, um, they're, they're, some people will have their rainbow badges on. Some people will say, hi, my name is X and my pronouns are whatever and whatever. So you will see um, you will see people who are through their name badges who have been generally supportive. Mm. And I think that's this, that's a major change. And I think, like you said, there's a lot of hospitals who are consciously training their caring staff to understand how to help them understand the trans world so they can just do what they're paid to do, which is what they want to do, which is to care for us better. And and I think sometimes what one one nurse was telling me that they'd had a trans person in who's who who presented very convincingly as their um I think tra- another trans man, but obviously had been assigned female at birth and had female physiology and wouldn't declare that. And so they had all sorts of problems treating it. And and they, and they got into this awkward scenario of saying, well, you need you know you need to have you need to have a screening session because you have female internal organs. And um and that person was saying, but well, I'm a trans man, I shouldn't have to have that. You're you're misgendering me by talking about the fact I have female internal apparatus. And I think this is this is where it becomes confusing because you know, in order to get the best care, we have to understand our own physiology and be in touch with the fact that I, we have to I, be I mean, practical I, I, about these things. I think that's um, a very minority of trans people of who would ta- take yeah. that approach. I think you're right. There is a tension between you are, you're right for your gender history and identity to not be divulged. We have a right to do that. And the fact that for certain parts of the NHS, you may need to know our, our gender history. You know, blood tests and things like and things like that. And I think this is something that we need to get better at when people change the details in, within the NHS um, about linking old records to new records. Um, 
so I, 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 that's a, I think that's an out. I think that's quite an outlier of a situation, maybe, of somebody refusing to, to accept that. Well, I, you know, you, I, I would defend the person's right to it's their body if they want to. As long as people know the risks, I think if you want to say, well, actually, you know, I'm not going to de- uh, declare my gender history. Um, I, I guess as long as you know the risk you're taking in doing that, um, I. But it's one of the challenges, isn't it, Jen? Now, if you're a trans man, um, you should have, you should be screened. You, you probably do need to have, you do need to have those things, and you have to recognise the fact. And I'm sure well, there's a degree of dysphoria. It's like, yeah, I'm a trans woman, but you know, um, I have a prostate, and I have problems with my prostate, and I can't pretend that I don't have a prostate problem. Well, it, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, you can, you can pretend if you want to take people take risks with their health as long as you understand the risks you're taking in not doing that I, I, I don't think many trans people take that view i just think it's we're not dealing with that in the first instance so i think my records don't show my gender history and it was a long time ago where i sort of changed them and transitioned them i think they I didn't link the records so you know um i you know I've, I've been i've been asked to go for breast screening which is right but not um not prostate screening, which I should have been. I've never had an invite for that. Now that's partly my fault because mm. I I need to to engage in that, and I'm hopeless in in, in that respect. I'm not good at, at looking after my own health. Um, um, you know, so I I think there's an ele- element of that, but there is that that, that that sort of tension between those two aspects. Most of healthcare isn't. You know, it depends. There's, there's a lot. You know, a big chunk of healthcare is not relevant to your gender history. I mean, my one uh, interaction last sort of decade was when I broke my leg and that clearly has nothing to do with my gender history. Um, I found being an inpatient excruciating um, because um, and, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's because I think when you're an in, a patient and inpatient, you feel very vulnerable anyway. Yes. But I, I think as I said, people imagine you're then trying to grasp hold and keep hold of your identity, yes. which there are things I need to do to assert my femininity because I can't cope with life otherwise. Like, for instance, putting a face on, you know, putting makeup on. I don't go out the house without makeup on. No. So the fact that people would come into the room and I had another chance um you know and, and some people might need to shave for instance and stuff and i begged them to just give me a few seconds before you all piled in so i could get myself ready to face the world yeah and you know sometimes they come in and i just pull the bed sheets up so people couldn't see me till i felt confident and ready and that was me trying to keep hold of my uh, my gender identity yeah. um you know and i think the real challenges for for impatience in those circumstances i think um but again, it's about and, communication, isn't it? It's about saying to the people, and and the challenge here is the the change between day and night shift, and that's often the thing where the you can talk to the the nurses on the day shift, and it doesn't always get transferred over to the well, night shift. I think so if we have to I mean, expect to do it again, I think if there's more awareness, then people yeah. are less. The other thing I think I worry, I, 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 I noticed, and I think I, I worry about with with people is is the vast vast majority of men and it just stuff would never want to offend anybody. Yeah. And I think they worry. So you worry about the language, you worry about misgendering. And that very um, idea of getting something wrong yeah. and upsetting somebody can create a barrier in itself. That I you agree. slightly step, and I've seen it, I've spoken to staff about this. It's panic is the wrong word, but slightly worried when they've got a trans patient, they may be seen yeah. inpatient or in the community or elsewhere, that they worry about getting it wrong or they worry about slipping up. And I and I this is what I spoke to the students about how important it is to 
to work hard against that because I don't believe you're then giving the same quality of care if you're slightly more distant than you would be for somebody who's cisgendered. And that's understandable because I think it's absolutely understandable that people worry about getting things wrong yeah. and slipping up. And um but I think part they of don't this, want to offend anybody. And I think that's right, but there are lots of other definitions. there are also the aspects that people in society where that's also the case. Uh, sort of you know religious views, age, for example, specific conditions, whatever it might be. And I think sometimes you know what we have to say is this is me, this is who I am, this is what I need. And I think sometimes just being saying that in a sort of polite and civil way. I mean, frankly, if I'm going to hospital and having a heart attack, I'm not really bothered about all the niceties. I just want them to fix my heart. And I think it's and I think it's it's about that piece, isn't it? You know, I I will get better more quickly if I'm actually feeling safe and secure in a place where people will just respect my rights. And and absolutely right, right. I think for us, it's important to know that the very very vast majority of people in the NHS care deeply and actually just want us to get better because actually. That's what they're there for. That's what they're trained for. It's really, it's really their most um... oh sorry. It's really their most important priority. So I think yeah. I think that's yeah. I think that's one of the things. And I just think sometimes we and and I the way I talk to the NHS is saying that we're generally slightly more anxious about the NHS because we have to deal with the gender identity clinics which are, uh, you know, a, a category or they're a conversation or a programme all on their own. Let's leave them for the day. Yeah. But because we have to deal with that and it has the words NHS sitting outside of them, if we're not careful, we can sort of paint the whole of the NHS with the same the same sort of brush as it were. And from what I've seen going into hospitals and training people and working people, from what I've seen, you know, on the whole, the most refreshing thing of all, and this is something you've said a thousand times, I still struggle with, is they just don't really care. It's not really an issue. Actually, they're not that bothered about our transits. All they want to do is treat us as an individual, get us through the system, get us well, get us fit, and get us back into society. And I think that, in a funny sort of way, that's the most important thing. That's the most important thing to keep in your own head. That's what people in the NHS want. They want to care for us and get us better quickly. I I, I agree. I, I agree that that's what... Um... I agree, um, but it's also the case if we don't, it doesn't require much for people to, to to not access services if they have a bad experience, right? And I know this is the case. I've heard stories of, you know, I uh, heard stories of, uh, not in any of the employees I work for, but I had a story of of, uh, of somebody who got a trans, trans daughter who was, and it wouldn't have been deliberate, well, misgendered two or three times, accessing a CAM mental health service. And therefore, then didn't want to um, yeah. engage anymore. So, um, because it hurt and upset. So, I, I get your point in the sensibleness about your approach, but also it hurts. It can hurt, and particularly when you try and assert yourself. I can, and, and that's I why. Think, but that's why we talked about in an earlier episode about building this resilience, which is really important. Because, um, and I'm not talking about youngsters because I'm not qualified to talk about those. But one of the things I've often found useful. I don't know what you think about this. So, for example, as a therapist myself, I've taken someone with extraordinary anxiety, white coat you know, syndrome, proper white coat syndrome, mm-hmm. to hospital. And I've spent two seconds explaining to the people who are putting her th- something down her throat that she is a, a morbid fear of doctors and nurses because she was raped and abused by partners who were dressed as doctors and nurses when she was a small child. And this echoes down through her life. And the doctors and nurses were absolutely fantastic. It just needed a moment of 
calmness. Sometimes taking someone with you as a bit of an advocate can help because I think sometimes we we often go into hospital being a bit scared, a bit on edge, a bit anxious. They're perhaps a little bit anxious because they're dealing with they're dealing with someone they don't normally deal with, and it can all go a bit. It can all be a triumph, which it normally is, or it can go a bit askew. And so sometimes I, I often say, if you can take someone with you, so much the better. I know it's not always possible, but the more you can, it's that just that someone to hold your hand, or someone to give you a bit of moral courage, or someone to say, "Excuse me, would you mind doing this?" <laughs> Without it becoming adversarial. I think the key is, for me, it's about not seeing it as an adversarial process. It's knowing that the vast majority of people just want you through the system in the most caring and efficient way possible. Yeah, I I, I agree. And certainly it's good advice. But as a community, we're more likely to be isolated and not have friends and family. And um, I, I, there is, to me, a duty on public sector bodies to have to be better on this subject. To be better i think it will take time it's not about blaming individuals but just not addressing it not uh, concerning themselves with it has been the case in the up until the last sort of certainly until the last 10 years there was no real discourse on the matter um i think um it's not good enough so i think there needs to be you know obviously there are other priorities in the office but there is a duty for the employer uh, to do that. I, I take your point that you can do things to help you through that. But, you know, we're a community at the moment with, you know, um, with poor mental health. It's a sweeping statement. But, you know, um, an article last year talked about from the British Psychological Society saying trans people mental health in the UK is at crisis point. Um, we have to understand that. And that's not because we're trans. That's because of the UK at the moment. You know, uh, I think there's a there is a a responsibility for us to do better um, personally, I think, as as public sector bodies. Um, but, uh, and that includes you know all areas. But I find this interesting, you see, because as someone who works in the NHS, but also around the NHS and in other organisations as well, mm-hmm. I would say the NHS were a million times more enlightened than the private sector, the million times more welcoming, a million times more accepting, but a million times more self-critical. And I think sometimes, you know, if, I mean, I was talking to you earlier about an organisation who just basically cancelled my contract because I'm trans. I have no yeah. recourse to that, nothing to do with that. And that would never happen in the NHS. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes we, whether we have very, very high expectations because it's a public sector body, but we, we often have very high, it's, bit, it's a bit like this. So I was on a cruise ship once. I know this is, seems a story going nowhere. But if you talk to cruise ship passengers, they're some of the most unhappy people in the world. They're on six-star ships, six-star food, six-star accommodation. Absolutely everything's perfect. Thousands of staff looking after them, and they're the most unhappy people because they're always complaining. And the, and the desk, which has the most complaints, is the customer complaints desk. And someone was having a chat online. And someone was standing in a queue compl- making a formal complaint about the ship. But it wasn't the ship they were on. It was the ship on the cruise they'd been on two cruises ago, and it wasn't even the same company. And I think sometimes, you know, when you bend over backwards to help people, what ends up happening is you can become hypersensitive about things. And actually, that gets in the way of it. Whereas most organizations just go, do you know what? This is a, the NHS, I would say, is brilliant compared to most private sector organizations I ever run into. I mean, that, that's brilliant. certainly true. But the public sector. I'm a has- big fan. No, no, don't get me wrong. I love the NHS. It's been my life. I've spent more than most of my, you know, 35 years in the NHS. I love it. And I love the employers I work for and I love the people I work with. 
I, you know, what I would say is the public sector does have extra duties in law in terms of equality, inclusion matters, um, because we know that uh, if we don't tackle those health outcomes, uh, if we don't tackle those matters of inequality and inclusion, it makes for worse health outcomes. So it's absolutely in our interest yes. as a body. And um, that's what was so nonsense when the recent, the last but one, well, the, you know, uh, health secretary, because they do change them a lot. Steve Barclay made a, wrote a letter to the NHS saying they should not recruit, they need to think about not recruiting to equality and inclusion roles, equality and diversity roles, which thankfully the NHS as a whole and almost every trust I've spoken to said, that's crazy, get lost. It showed him lack of understanding because if we don't make ourselves more inclusive to those um, uh, those communities with poor health outcomes, that we're not doing a job, you know, it's that bigger picture. So I think there are some differences in that than some private um, sector. I think big, you know, big sort of corporate private sectors maybe do understand these issues because it's in their interests. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right, in general, you know, the private sector doesn't have those same same duties. But I don't think you can measure, I don't know who you measure the NHS. I mean, I measure the NHS against, um, you know, the police and the fire services and things like that and other emergency yeah. services. And I actually think we were a bit slower on these issues than other areas. Now, I'm not saying everything is right, for instance, in the police force, but my experience with Staffordshire Police has always been uh, pretty positive. But I think they, you know, in the light of Stephen Lawrence and et al, and even now they're looking at this, they realise they've got a problem. I think we were complacent for a long time in the NHS in terms of all areas of inclusion. So, for instance, we have data that shows um, that certainly a few years back, you were less likely to get a job in the NHS if you were black than if you were white. You know, uh, you know, and we were, you know, we're not doing. So there was lots of inequalities that we hadn't really addressed, because there's a part of the NHS is everybody, you know, NHS is so fondly loved as an institution that is rightly so. That I th personally, I think we were a bit complacent. I wasn't doing ecological inclusion work for a big chunk of my career. I am now, and um, and I think it's been recognised how actually it makes a difference to the health of the people we serve, and and, and we've seen that. But I, I get your point, you know, and we shouldn't, in a sense, uh, beat ourselves up too much because I think we're doing the right thing. But I it, think we have to battle against, you know, the political powers who don't yes. value. Yes, uh, I know. Don't value it. And I think, and I think we have to be careful not to conflate those two issues. So for for me, when I deal with the NHS, I'm dealing with the nurse or the doctor or the clinician or the porter standing yeah. in front of me. Tom Peters used to say years ago that all organisations, big and small, face a moment of truth. And the moment of truth is when a staff member deals with a client or a customer or a patient yeah. or whatever it is. And it is when you're working with the NHS, you're not. You're dealing with Jenny, who's sitting in front of you, talking to you. And actually, if you have a bad experience with Jenny, that's not the NHS, that's Jenny. And if you have a great experience with Jenny, it's a great experience with Jenny, not the NHS. So I think sometimes what we have to do is we have to be careful not to see that if we have a bad experience with CAMS, for example, as you mentioned earlier, that's not the same as going to um, a GR, GR, um, um, sexual health unit, for example. Although they have this word NHS out the front, it is actually different. And I think it comes down to the, you know, how to get the best out of the NHS comes back to how do you get the best out of any person that's sitting in front of you? I mean, and, you definitely, sorry, go on. And I was going to, and I was, all I was going to conclude by saying is, you know, if, we every single day we bump into people who either get us, don't get us, 
um, think we're amusing, think we're terrible, think, well, whatever it is, we're not. But actually, what matters in the NHS for us is that we get the service we want. Yeah. And sometimes you can get the service without all the frills. And sometimes you can get all the frills without the service. And sometimes you can get both. And all I say is it's about re- really being really clear that when you're dealing with someone, you're dealing with an individual who represents the NHS. And I know that's a bit weird, but that's the way I've always made sense of it. And that helps me understand the fact that if you bump into a receptionist who's a bit curt, that receptionist is just a receptionist who's being a bit curt. They're not being curt to me because I'm me. They are being curt because they are curt. And I think sometimes we often, and, and we often conflate a general tendency toward be, being something about ourselves. And this is why it's really useful to take someone with you if you possibly can. I know you can't always, but as much as you possibly can, because you'll often say that person was really nasty to me and the person, someone with you say, no, they were absolutely fine. I mean, and that, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right on that. And that applies to all patients if they yeah. feel they've had bad service. The issue for trans people is that lack of understanding of the needs, the, the some of the needs of a trans person you know, it's different because they don't understand, yeah. you know, so um, having, letting, you know, having these may sound trivial things, but letting somebody be able to get the face on or have a shave yeah. or do whatever they need, just having that, you know, a yeah. bit of an adjustment about your work will yeah. help that person cope better with, with but, their own. But Jenny, care. don't you think we have a, don't you think we also have a responsibility to explain that to them? So we ju- I mean, you're, you're making a great point that they should know, but actually I would say I wouldn't expect people I, to know. I, I think you're right. My, my, the one it's a bit like a religious I, freedom, isn't it? It's saying things I like... I suppose so. I mean, on the know, one occasion I had when I was an inpatient, I was misgendered. Often two nurses would come in and they would refer to going to lift me. I'd got broken my leg and I got misgendered. I don't think it was ever done deliberately. No. Um, and it upset me. I was very vulnerable. I'd, I'd pull me... I'd have a sob when they'd left. I didn't complain, which I feel maybe I should have. I didn't you say anything. Yeah. Well, I didn't say anything because I was feeling I was in a, a side room and I was feeling, you know, I wanted the nurses to come in and interact with me. I didn't want to be on my own. And and I was worried that if I made a complaint, the nurses would just maybe not want to come in first thing in the morning and say hi because they worry about slipping up or something like that. I would probably handle it differently now. Yes. But I never once complained. And I, I, I was and it did Look, I was much more. I was felt much. I felt very vulnerable as an inpatient yes. in those circumstances. I but, felt, there's I was to... but there's a difference between complaining, which is a formal process, and actually just stating your needs and saying. Yeah, no, I hey. think one or two of the nurses were really good that they came yeah. in, and, and I said, "Do you mind me asking something?" I said, "Yeah, ask away. I'm more than happy to talk about." And I always say, I say this to nurses. Actually, you know, if you ask questions in a um, yeah. I, I, in a respectful way, people will, you know, be respectful. I think when you try and talk around a subject and for fear of saying the wrong thing you know i think this is why the awareness is so important so people are going with a baseline of understanding you know what it you know partly of what it means uh, uh to be trans and what those um you know those difficulties or those fears you can be so you're right i think you're right in that i think you know maybe i'd handle it differently now um but yeah um it's 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 Look, I mean, I can only talk about my own experience. Of course. I think other people cope cope a lot better. And you're absolutely right about different parts of the NHS. So my experience over the last few years is uh, teams that are dealing with younger people have much more yes. interaction and exposure to, to trans non-binary um, um, patients. And, and, I think, and I think however tricky it is for trans men and trans femme, I think it must be, it must be 
um, trickier for the non-binary community well, because I, that's yeah. so much more complicated. And I think that's, that, again, it's not about standing there. It's not about standing there and waiting to be offended. It's about stating your needs, stating your rights and accepting that not everybody's going to get it right all the time. But that's where the awareness needs to come in. Because once you explain to people who are part of it is talk about, you know, this is why non-binary, this is, uh, and people start to get that. And then they may slip up, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's an area where there's a, it seems to be the a, a lot of, and the same for the staff. So when I, I know non-binary staff who I work with who are not authentic and out at work because they just hear comments and feel that staff won't take it seriously and they get exhausted by trying to, to explain. So this is why the training that, that you do and uh, you do. the work, hopefully some of the work I, I'm able to do and with the support of the trust. And, and uh, as I say, my experience at a very senior level is they get this right up to the chief executive. I've never had any pushback on this from anybody senior. So there definitely is a will to be to there, but the NHS is under such pressure at the moment. There is very little spare time or capacity. You can't believe how uh, pressured things are trying to recover from COVID. So yes. that's what's proving difficult is getting people the time to do these bits that are important. You know, um, I'd love it to trans awareness to be mandatory. So everybody has some, you know, everybody that particularly is patient facing. I'd love that to be the case, but I'm realistic at the moment. And that's, there's just not enough capacity for that at the moment. Yeah, I, I, interesting I think, subject. Though. I it's think, a really interesting subject, though. Jill. I think anything that's mandatory is a, is a challenge because I mean, I bumped into doing some mandatory training the other day, and that got some real hostility back from it. Because, um, but then I mean, that's a, maybe a subject for another day, and it wasn't in the NHS as well. So, to answer the question, how do you get the best from people? Is recognise that people in the NHS are individuals. <laughs> recognise that different parts of the NHS are different. Recognise that people like Jenny and you are doing tons of work to actually, because the NHS is concerned enough, often recognise the fact that they they need you to help them help, he needs you to help their, them help you. And, and think, any any trust will have uh, an equality and inclusion lead, they'll have a yeah. nurse, for instance, if, you, if you're dealing with nurses or nursing lead, and if you've got concerns, they're the people to contact. And, yeah. you know, it's not about necessarily making a complaint, just saying nope. that. I think it'd be really useful for people to say, this was my experience, and this is yeah. what went well, and this is what didn't go well. And, and I, I think, think that's, I think that's really, really powerful. To hear that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so powerful. And it's the bit which works, works well mm. as well, because actually sometimes we... The only feedback anyone ever, I, I make a point of when anyone's done something well, going up and saying, this is, this was really good. I really appreciate yeah. it. And I don't, and I remember I went to our local, in a garden centre, there's a fantastic cafe. And I went up to her recently and said, can I have a quick chat? And she was immediately on the defensive because she thought I was going to complain. And I just said, yeah. I want to say how fantastically well run this is, how friendly everybody else, how inclusive it is, how comfortable I feel. And she looked at me and said, no one ever says things like that to us. Yeah, so we, we're already in a situation when everyone ever comes up and talks to us of thinking we're going to have a have a terrible time. It's, yes, I, I'm, absolutely. It does make a make a huge difference, and particularly if you have feel like you have been treated really well, is yeah. because other people can learn from that. You know, maybe yeah. little things. You know. So please, if you do have an experience and it's good, please say. It. And I mean, that person I took in who had the white coat fear, and when I said afterwards, has been you know you have made life. That woman achieved so much that day in terms yeah. of her treatment because people were brilliant, absolutely right. fantastic. They really cared. They looked after her. She ended up having one of the procedures without anaesthetic because she just, you know, she learned the breathing techniques and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, um, 
take some courage from it and recognize that you might have poor experiences, but you're having poor experiences with an individual, not with the whole of the NHS. So it's it's no reason not to to um, to not look after yourself because you think you've had a difficult experience in the past. So just take courage and, and if necessary, reach yeah. out to a charity or a support unit or other Absolutely. people. And this is a place where you do avoid social media, because actually a, a lot of people who are on social media like to have a good old bitch moan and whinge about whatever is going on in life and so yeah. we just have to make okay. sure that we talk to people where they have positive experiences and one of our friends is a what used to be called a matron on a ward and a, a, a very big hospital on the south coast and she is so matter of fact about these things she just says simple things like trans people we need to look after them because we need to get better absolutely Sim simple I mean, once you know that's just everybody's incentive is to get people better so they can get to the next person who's ill, that's the most important thing. And I think, so I think we've we said, hopefully we've answered that question, Peter. I think hopefully um, that we can keep yeah, them happy. I, 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 yeah, so let's hope so. But yeah, it's a it's a really interesting subject, obviously one that's close to my heart. So yeah. thank, you for the, thank you for that, listener. Right then. Um, well, we, we this was supposed to be a short podcast, and we've ended <laughs> rabbit and non-fringes. Yes, we've we've given up trying to judge how long we're going to talk about yeah. a subject. <laughs> do you know but, though uh, something? Because it's Christmas coming up soon. Do you think it's time for that Star Trek episode soon? Well, I, I don't know how you link Star Trek to Christmas, but I'm sure we can find a way of shoehorning it in. I have no problems. I think it's something to do with stars and. I yes and no no even i think i'll struggle but that's okay i'm sure i'm sure we can i'm sure we can get there i'm sure <laughs> i'm already thinking of terrible puns well look have a good week and i shall speak to you next week and you bye jail bye everyone bye take care thanks for listening to this episode of transvox it's been a joy to have you with us um, if you want to um, make contact with us, you can contact us at gillian at transvox.co.uk. And if you'd like to support the work we do, please go to Patreon and go to page Transvox. And all of our money goes to our nominated charity. And Jen, you've chosen the charity for the next number of episodes. Which one have you chosen? Our charity is called Beyond Reflections, which is a charity that provides support, and counselling to trans people, non-binary people and their friends and their families across the UK. An amazing charity doing some amazing work, really important. So please, if you can give. Great. And if you want to go and have a look at Beyond Reflections, it's beyond-reflections.org.uk. And uh, But as I say, if you'd like to make a contribution to what we're doing, because we love to help the people who help us. Uh, again, if you've got ideas for um, the show, things you'd like to ask us, questions, comments, applause, or um, brickbats, feel free to send it all Absolutely. in to Gillian at transvox.co.uk. Until the next time, goodbye. Bye-bye.